This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. The Zoomer squad got things going on Monday, revisiting Bill 7, the law that allows hospitals to send patients who no longer need to be in hospital to nursing homes where they have not chosen to live. The law also requires hospitals to charge these patients $400 a day if they don't leave. The CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario says the changes won't take pressure off of the hospital system because those in the community who've been waiting for a long-term care placement have now been bumped far down the list, with available spots being taken by alternate level of care patients being moved out of hospital. Joining Libby as they do every Monday, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. There's a waiting list before. I don't know how you're worse off. Um, now if you're you got moved 20, further down because... Well, I don't, the, I don't understand the move further down. I don't know whether that... It was presented in the article as if that was like a requirement that I moved somebody over there and everybody moves down a pace. But if I'm located in southern Ontario and I have filed a list of five long-term care homes that I'm waiting for, and by definition I couldn't get in, that's why I'm waiting, uh, how is my position made worse by moving somebody from Thunder Because Bay maybe if that if that spot opens up, they will move somebody out of hospital first. Maybe, but um, how many spots are open? I mean, it was interesting that the ministry, which gave that 2,400 figure, didn't say how many of them had moved, how far, how many of them were in Northern Ontario. <laughs> interesting or uh, typical? It makes their own life harder. I don't know why they wouldn't provide those numbers because they look bad without those numbers. They they are not looking very good on this whole thing. It really is uh, changing the deck chairs on the Titanic and just moving moving things around doesn't solve uh, the problem at all. And I think it's quite possible that those people who uh, were on the waiting list at a certain level now find that if people are being bumped out of hospital and above them, there won't be enough uh, spaces for them to come in as quickly as they had hoped to. Bottom line is there just aren't enough, uh, there aren't enough beds. So we don't want people staying in hospital longer than they have to. I'm sure they don't want to stay in hospital longer than uh, uh, they have to, but they need to be moved someplace where they're going to get uh, care with dignity and the ability to uh, still have the family supports that they, that they need. Uh, and I think that's the, big piece the government is always missing, not understanding that the care is not just given in the hospital or in long-term care homes. It's given by family and friends who come in regularly, who give the care. And if they're making the move uh, out of the area where those people can conveniently get to, then the, their quality of care is going to go down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, people, 
Peter, does that make sense to you that people will be, it makes sense to me. I mean, first of all, what are there, 38,000 people on waiting lists? And uh, if they're trying to, if the priority is to get people out of the hospital, then uh, I think they they get uh, the beds as they come up. Uh, that would make sense. Yeah, and and that seems to be how it's working. Um, what what I don't understand though is is like, um, you know, when I, when I had an elderly mother or um, aunt, I was looking after. You know, they they sometimes had to go to hospital, but they didn't, they didn't just stay in hospital forever. You know, like when when they were when the doctor deemed them to be alternative level of care, uh, we took them home or we found you know, a nursing home for them. So, like, what I don't understand is why there are so many patients just sort of lingering in hospital. Are they, do they not have families? I'm I'm not being, I'm I'm trying not to be um, rude here, but but is is there no one looking after them? Like, are, are they just sort of perpetually Well, you know, uh, probably a lot of older people live by themselves. So, yes, the answer, Peter, I think is, that no, they don't have family or their family doesn't have the wherewithal to care for them. It just seems insoluble. Like he, he, on, on the one hand, uh, I can see the need to sort of free up um, these beds and get these patients to the to the, their proper level of care. And then on the other hand, um, you know, it seems very heavy-handed manner in which they're doing it. So um, I, I, I just, like, I, I'm somewhere in the middle on this. I'm, I'm not entirely against Bill 7, but um, you know, I, 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 I wonder about the heavy handedness of it. Fight backs as Zoomer Squad, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, membership, chief membership officer of CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, chief operating and chief policy officer of CARP, a new vision of aging. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. The governing Ford PCs at Queen's Park are getting a lot of pushback for Bill 23, their home building plan, which is now law. GTA mayors, notably Mississauga's Bonnie Crombie and Toronto's John Tory, warn about the consequences of reducing and waiving fees that developers have been paying until now to provide the infrastructure for new homes. Mayor Crombie, for one, says property taxes will need to go up between 5 and 10 percent a year for 10 years because of the new housing legislation. Then there is the issue of opening up part of the green belt for development, something Premier Doug Ford promised he would never do. What do fightbacks recovering politicians think? On Tuesday, Libby spoke with Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the federal conservatives, Glenn DeBearmaker, former Toronto City Councillor, and Gerard Kennedy, a former liberal MP and MPP. People have seen two types of Doug Ford. I think there was early Doug Ford, which looked like it was a model that wasn't going to get out of the shop and was going to, you know, be... Uh, be uh, not around for very long. And this, uh, to do with the Greenbelt, really looks like a triple-dumb thing. It's breaking a promise. There's no rationale for it. And I don't know how Mr. Ford or the people advising him and the people also in the cabinet think that people aren't going to notice the ramifications of this. Uh, People are going to make a huge, huge amount of money at the very time they're talking about making housing cheaper. Uh, and the fact that some of those people can be linked to the uh, political well-being of his political party 
uh, makes no sense that the legislation's already passed and none of those safeguards are in place. Uh, none of which really touches the integrity of the, the basic question, which is we need the green belt. We need to protect the water supply. Uh, we need to put limits on growth so it'll take place in an organized fashion. Uh, and the town of Aaron woke up today, uh, I guess, shaking their head that, that it's all, all the land that, that Mr. Ford wants to keep are put in the green belt to make up for what is going out to the parties that have been talked about uh, to develop uh, is coming from one place. So I, it's a, it really is a head shaker. So yes, I would say there is a chance this would have to be walked back because that's what the second Doug Ford looks like is somebody that appraises what's going on and gets out of it before the water gets too hot. Lisa, what's your view? I think that's the, the age old hope of every politician when they alleviate some costs onto the private sector that they hope it's going to get passed through to the consumer. And then whether or not it gets passed down is another question. And that's where the politician has to make sure that they have the ability to, you know, bring down the heavy if they don't. So there's a whole bunch of laws that you have always in your toolbox so that if you say, we're going to get rid of the development charges or we're going to alleviate those on you, uh, if you don't pass it along, if you don't have a good explanation, then the government can come in and, and impose a tax on you. And whether or not that's that's uh, what the end will do. There's always that that other shooter drop. So when it comes to it, so that's probably how politicians think their way through these things, which is it is a private sector beast, and you're going to try to make them pass it on through. And do you have the tool to make sure that they do that? But to tell you what the state of mind is in the politician, that's what they're thinking that it will actually get passed down because that's what that's what these companies are telling the government. Of course, we're going to pass it along to the person. Um, and if they don't, then the government's in a whole bunch of trouble. Glenn, what do you see as the biggest peril for the Ford government here? Certainly, I see many, many perils in this. This attack on the green belt is insane. It's a disaster. It's a betrayal of the people who elected the government. The green belt was enshrined in law to make sure that those farms and those forests were protected forever in trust as a sanctuary to protect our drinking water supply. And before the election, the premier said, we will not touch the green belt. A couple months after the election, we're opening up thousands and thousands of acres under the excuse that we need more housing. And that excuse uh, just simply is not true. Um, you know, people talk, oh, we need more affordable housing. Does anyone, uh, certainly not on this panel, because I think we're, we're attuned to these policies. I don't think anyone on my street believes for a second that any of those $2 million homes they build on the Greenbelt are going to solve the affordable housing crisis. Taking money away from the government and not touching the developers is a complete disaster. So uh, I think this will bring down the Ford government. It's going to be a long four years, but the the, the outrage across the GTA will cost this government seats and will likely cost them the next election. Glenn DeBearmaker, former city councillor, Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the federal conservatives, and Gerard Kennedy, a former liberal MP and member of provincial parliament, our recovering politicians panel on Tuesday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, more on Bill 23 and what it could mean for Mississauga. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As discussed with the Recovering Politicians panel, the provincial Tories are taking a lot of criticism for their new home-building law. Mississauga's mayor and her councillors have put some numbers behind their complaints. They say the GTA city stands to lose about one-fifth of its capital budget, or close to $900 million over 10 years. And plugging that hole would mean hefty property tax hikes and or service cuts. Libby spoke with Mississauga City Councillor Carolyn Parrish. Well, the numbers come from the fact that we're losing development charges on most of the units in the categories they've listed, and they will be setting the D.C. limits uh, for the rest, and it will be obviously not very flexible. Right now, our D.C.s are set by a really strict process of evaluating the, the project, and it's not, it's a very tight math formula. It seems now that with Bill 23, they're going to just do a blanket formula. Okay, DC's development charges, right? Sorry, DC's development charges, and they also are removing parkland fees, so it's a big hit. That's, uh, and uh, how many, uh, right now, do you have an idea of how many units are, uh, have, have either permits or are under development in Mississauga? We have 40,000 approved units, particularly a lot of them in the downtown core, where there's no height limits and no density limits. And some of them have the lands have flipped three and four times from one developer to another since the 90s, and nobody's building anything. And and why is that? I guess they're waiting to see what the market goes up or down. Who knows what the business decisions are, but those those lands have been sitting there since about the middle 90s with no restrictions on them. So uh, we can't figure out why they're not building them, but they aren't. And uh, is is that is the what you take from that 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 this was not necessary that uh, if if those lands are not being built on it's a business decision as opposed to uh, too much red tape or whatever. Well, yeah, I wouldn't misconstrue my comment as new housing is not necessary. It's definitely necessary. We've got problems um, all over. Ontario, where we need more housing, that's that's not an issue. I'm not, and I'm not disputing that. I'm saying this uh, piece of legislation hits you over the head with a hammer when, in actual fact, the developers are the ones that are are sitting on land, making money every time they flip it, and building nothing. Do you think that this will result in building any additional affordable housing? Our staff is predicting it reduces the affordable housing we had in the pipe by 40%. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a chunk. If, if this bill is supposed to be helping us build affordable housing, well, all the financial ramifications of it have just now reduced our affordable housing in the pipe by 40%. And and how so? What kind? What do you have in the pipe and, and uh, uh, where does the money come from sort of specifically? Well, what we do right now is uh, as uh, building permits are coming in and plans are coming in, we ask for, we did ask for 5% affordable units. We we upped that to 10% recently. And the developers who don't want to do it have been giving us cash in lieu, which we can then put into a fund for people 
like Habitat for Humanity to come along and do some sort of uh, affordable full building. So we have been either putting the money away or asking the developers to put 5 to 10% affordable units in all their buildings. That is no longer possible. So is that on top of your regular development charges? Is it a separate line for the developers? It would be a separate line for the developers, yes. And, and could you, I mean, does does the new law pre- pre- specifically prohibit that? Yes, it does. Oh, okay. Um, I guess... Uh, there you are know. no loopholes, Libby. This There are no loopholes in this bill. And it is so complex, it took our staff a couple weeks to prepare a report for us to understand it. And we're in the business. And the the regular taxpayer who looks at this just scratches their head and said, it's impossible to, to unwind. So that's why we're putting the postcard out, which simplifies it to the point where they understand the new Ford tax is going to hurt them. Mississauga City Councilor Carolyn Parrish in conversation with Libby Zneimer. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Well, we've been hearing a lot about the respiratory virus RSV mainly affecting small children. Experts believe the next wave will hit older Canadians. That's why Health Canada experts are reviewing a potential vaccine to protect seniors, as Dr. Don Bowdish, the Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity, explained to Libby. So what's interesting about RSV is it's a virus that really affects the very young and the very old. So in the very, very young, um, especially as premature babies, have always been at high risk. So they have one treatment where they can get some antibodies injected into them to help protect them during that one period of time. But some early vaccine trials in the 1990s were not, uh, not only were they not effective, they actually didn't seem to make um, babies worse. So for a long time, there was a pause on on vaccine research for RSV because of this, the complexities of this particular virus. But the good news is the RSV virus, even though it's completely unrelated to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, it has a bit of the same sort of structural feature. In the COVID vaccine, there's this thing called the spike protein. The spike protein is what the virus uses to get into our cells. And RSV has a similar protein on its surface. And as it turns out, the same messenger RNA technology that works so well in the COVID vaccine looks like it's extremely effective uh, because it sort of targets a protein with the same structure on the RSV uh, virus. So as a consequence, there's good news for both the very young and the very old. It looks like this technology will be able to be adapted so that we have vaccines that are tailored towards kids, but also towards adults and older adults. Mm-hmm. But we'll have one for older adults first? Uh, in general, the approval process for adults is a little bit faster than the approval process for children. One of the reasons for that is it's just easier to consent adults into trials. Um, you know, old, any adult can consent to be in a trial, so those trials must go, tend to go much more quickly. And with children, there's some uh, funny math about dosing schedules. So babies less than six months, uh, children under two, children under five, and then children five to 12, all tend to be evaluated as separate groups because it's not as simple as just scaling the amount 
of the active ingredient to the size of the person. There's specific quirks of the young immune system that mean the dosing has to be uh, very carefully evaluated. Whereas with adults, it's usually one dose. You just find the dose that provides sufficient immunity. And sometimes with older adults, you need a little bit more uh, of the uh, active ingredient. But Compared to dealing with dosing regimens for children, it's comparatively simple. Where is Health Canada at in the process? My understanding is that they're reviewing these. The trials were presented at a few major international meetings, so the scientific communities had the chance to look at the data. And now the data packages that's with Health Canada will uh, investigate uh, all that data and look at it independently um, and look for uh, data on the safety, how well the people reacted to it. But to be honest, the data that's been publicly presented has been really, really positive. So the expectation is it may not take too long to um, approve this vaccine, but we have to keep in mind that there will be challenges to actually getting vaccines into the circulation in Canada. Uh, what people don't understand, because the COVID vaccines were a little bit unusual, is that generally once the vaccines approved by Health Canada and the National Advisory Council on Immunization makes its recommendations about who should get it, when they should get it, when the doses should be available, each province then undergoes its own review and decides how it wants to implement the vaccine. So just to give you an example... Uh, influenza vaccines differ across the country about what age groups or what disease conditions can get them. Is it free or is it not free for people under 65? Um, and sometimes uh, the provinces, uh, some will decide to implement and some won't. So unlike COVID, which was a national emergency, so there was a lot of unity in how we were going to move forward with these, although some province-to-province variation, we still have to to wait for the various provinces to come up with their own plan. Dr. Don Bowdish, the Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Angela from Woodbridge phoned to weigh in on Bill 23. There have been many permits that have been issued for buildings, and I'm just wondering why the PC government isn't going after builders and telling them, look, you've got permits, get building. I know it's the economic uh, forecast, but, you know, they should really be going after them. And another thing is, as I just read now, that Mayor Tom uh, Marrakis in Newmarket, he just uh, tweeted that he'll be asking council to consider adding a new line in the 2023 budget, provincial housing tax. This will represent the tax increase due to the impacts of Bill 23. I guess this is to let the residents know that you can thank Ford for this tax. Susan in Toronto phoned to say she does not feel the new provincial law will result in more affordable housing. I just wonder, can they take Doug Ford out 
right now? I mean, can he, <laughs> no. or do we have to wait to an uh, election? You have and, to, you have to wait until the next election and, uh, yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Because what do you um, think? Do you think this will result in any more affordable homes? I live in a, you know, small apartment. I'm not going to have a home, but I see apartments, condos, homes going up everywhere. And it just breaks my heart because nobody that is a moderate income or, you know, doesn't, isn't pretty wealthy can afford these prices. It's, I, and you know what? It's not going to stop. It's not going to end. And I, I really believe that is the future. And that sounds awful, but that's what I think. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Beth in Toronto, who phoned to say long-term care is not the answer. I looked after my mom for 13 years in my home. The, the solution to me seems really very simple. Support home care. Give yeah. the people what they need to take care of their loved ones. A lot of people want to do that, but they just don't feel like they're adequate to do that, that they can't do it. They don't have the skills or the knowledge. Give them the nurses and the PSWs to support them in their homes, and they'll keep their loved ones with them because that's what seniors want. They want to stay in the home and they want to be with their loved ones. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.